Good morning, everyone. I know I look really good today. I know I'm sporting a new fashion statement. I'm waiting for New York City, the runway design companies, to uh, catch on to the new attire. It's called Modern Day Chains. Now, I know that it looks a little stupid, a little silly that I would come in this way, but uh, in, a, in a sense, I have come in this way only to represent how a lot of people have entered into church or even here at Mission View just emotionally, spiritually, physically, intellectually. There's a lot of people that have baggage in their life, and as a result, it's weighing them down. Today we're going to talk about being an influence for God, and it's our, the last part of what our mission is all about. But let me tell you that it's going to be impossible for anyone to really be that influence for God if you're weighed down, if there's things in your life that prohibit you from actually running the, the race that God wants for you, that he's marked out for you. And what I want is for us to allow the Spirit of God to free us. Now, I'm not saying it's always instantaneous. It's not. It's not just one service and all of a sudden, presto, the, all, the, all the stuff is gone, all the baggage, all the problems that we've allowed in our life are gone. But there does come a point where we begin the process. And when we give ourselves to God and we submit ourselves to Him, all of a sudden, the weight starts going off and he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, enter into my yoke, and I will give you rest. What I want for us today is to experience that. For us to have a liberating time where we can let go of the things of the past so that we can look forward to the mission that God has for us. Because I'm telling you, there is an, a mighty work, uh, an important work that God wants of every single person that is sitting in this auditorium today. It's vitally important. This past week, I got a testimony from Chelsea Elkins. Chelsea has been coming to Mission View since Easter. And Chelsea gave me permission to read her story. She's going to be baptized in November at our next baptism. And this is what she wrote in her testimony. Please see if you can understand or identify the kind of the chains and the baggage and the things that were weighing her down. She says, when I was a child, my family went to church every Sunday. My siblings and I were involved in youth ministry and loved learning the Christian values. My family went to church all together until I was about 12 or 13 years old. Then things started to fall apart. My mom stopped going to church while my dad went. I, I took my mom at not going to church as me not having to go to church. I only went when I felt like it or when my dad asked me to go. I lost the meaning of what going to church meant and why I needed God in my life. Before I knew it, my family was slowly being torn apart. I had no idea what to do and I gave up on going to church and looking to God for answers all together. I blamed God for tearing my family apart. My parents went through their divorce, and it hit me harder than I could have imagined. I did not know where to look or what to do anymore. 
Meanwhile, my dad still went to church. He tried very hard to keep our family together. This all took place over several long years. Now the turning point of my story. I met a wonderful guy named Taylor McGill who invited me to attend Easter service at Mission View. After that service, I decided it was time to fix my relationship with God. I needed him more than I realized. And now I tried to live my life in such a way that embraces the change that God wants to bring in my life. And I could not be more thankful for the ways in which God has blessed me and done a work in my life today. Did you see the baggage? Did you see the turning point? Did you see the point of liberation? Here's what I know in regards. Before we get to influence, we need to deal with this topic of, of liberation. Here's what I know. Number one, that in this life, we're always going to have trials. We're always going to have temptations. It's a given. God says it in his word very, very clearly. We know what trials are. We know it's loss of job. We know that it's a death in the family. We know it's a lot of disappointment. We know what temptation is. Before we know it, the temptation is for us to get away from God, to get away from church, get away from those hypocrites. And we start living how we really want to live. And we want to build a name for ourselves. We want to build love. We want to have romance. We want to have everything that we think God wants to keep away from us. We know what trials are. We know what temptations are. We know it. Here's the fact, though. Number two, the enemy wants us weighed down with those sins. He wants us immobilized. Here's what happens. When we get ingrained in these things, entangled in them, this is what we know for certain. We become sidelined, immobilized, crippled, and weighed down. That's exactly what the enemy wants of each and every one of us. But here's the beautiful truth. The fact is, Jesus Christ invites us. He says, come, you who are weary and burdened, and I want you to enter into my yoke, according to Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. God is not caught off by our propensity for sin. He's not. He's dealt with it for a very long time. His first children, Adam and Eve, they got caught up in it. His nation, his chosen nation, well, they got caught up in it again and again and again and again. So he understands our nature. He understands that we have a tendency to move away. But with God's divine help, we can come close to him. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus did something that was brilliant. He established what he called the bride of Christ, the church, this thing here. And he, 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 he developed this so that it would be, a, so to speak, a hospital. A hospital that would bring those who are weary and heavy laden, those that have made a lot of mistakes in their life, and it gives us grace. He gives us grace. He says, repent of our sin. Come, enter into my rest, you who are weary. Number four, what God does is he urges us. He urges us not only to enter into a place like this, not only to hear God's word, but he says, get rid of that which entangles you, and I want you to run the race that I have marked out for you. You see what he's saying? I've created you for influence. I've created you for the race. But this is what's going to trip you up. Sin is going to entangle you. But this is what I want. 
I want you to go forward. And finally, what he wants is us to forget what is in the past and to strive for what's in the future, the future victory. Read Philippians chapter 3 sometime. But why does God want that? Why does he want us to strive for the future victory? Because he created you and I with purpose. He created you with the stamp of his image right in our life so that we would give glory and honor to him in how we live this life of ours. He's done that. He made it possible. And what we know is we have an enemy who wants you to wallow in the gloom and the fog of your past mistakes. He wants you to stay there. He wants you in your fear of failure. He wants you in your hatred towards that person that hate, uh, hurt you. He wants you to stay there. If he can keep you there, that's a victory for him. But here's what God wants. He wants you in the truth. He wants you to know the truth. He wants you to know, according to 1 John 1, 9, that you're forgiven if you confess your sins. He wants you to know, according to Galatians 4, 6, that you are a, you are a certified child, bonded child of God. He wants you to know that he has a very important message and that you are that royal ambassador of his, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20, that he wants you to share with a very lost, a very dark world. He has that message. He wants that of each and every one of us. And when we use our gifts and when we speak of his name and we tell our grace story we are participating in the forward victory that he wants. Is that true in your life? At Mission View, this is our mission statement. We want to make disciples who have an intimacy with God, community with others, and influence in the world. Today we're going to evaluate this influence. Let's ask God to really use our time together in his word. Lord, I pray that you would allow your spirit to be in the way, allow this man to be out of the way. I pray that you would use the power of your word to speak to our hearts today. And I pray, Father, that you would do something beautiful in each of our lives. And Lord, if we are caught up with all kinds of emotional baggage and things of the past, I pray that you'd help us to submit them before you and enter into your rest. May you forgive us, cleanse us, and get us ready for the race you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. Today we're going to ask two questions. The first question is going to take a little bit of time for us to develop. The last question, only a few minutes. But the first question is this. How can we influence our world? How can we do that? As a church, how are we to influence our world? What I'm going to do is I'm going to share four things that I, we gleaned from the Scriptures that as leaders we have agreed that this is what we need to be. Now these four things that I'm going to be sharing with you today, they're not Steve's ideas, they're not the elders' ideas, they're God's ideas. All we're going to do is look at them and say how should we obey them. So th there's four principles, and I hope that you'll take notes in regards to your community groups because I really want you to discuss these things later on in this week. The first thing is that we are to go. 
We know this from Matthew chapter 28. The context is Christ is he's risen from the grave. He is about to go to heaven, but he gathers his disciples and he gives them what is the Great Commission. People have noted it's the Great Commission. That he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I am sending you out. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I command. And lo, I am with you always. So that was a promise. That was a commission that he gave. Now, I want to focus in on two words in this. The first word is authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, implied by the Father, and I am now sending you with that authoritative backing. The word authority means the highest official power. You see, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus brought about this authority for salvation. Jesus on the cross, he did something. He paid for the penalty of sin and death, according to 1 Corinthians 15. It says also in Colossians 2 that he disarmed the powers of the demonic world all because he died on the cross. The grip of sin that was on mankind was broken because of what Jesus Christ did. In other words, Jesus did all the heavy lifting. He made the provision. He went through, there was thousands of years of history leading up to him, the Messiah coming, the Messiah coming, and now the Messiah came. He paid the price and he says, here it is, it's yours. It's your message that I want you to give to the world. And when Jesus says we are to go, he's not writing this as a request. Hey, guys, if you're, if, you're, if you're feeling good today, go ahead and go out and make disciples. He's not stating it as if it's a something for consideration, like if it's convenient for us. What he is saying is that this is a commission. Anybody that is a Christ follower is commissioned. You don't have to wait for someone to give you permission. He already gave it. If you gave your life to him, he has commissioned you. Let's put it this way. You get a call one day, and it is President Obama who calls you. And you say, well, President Obama, why would you call me? He says, I want you to come to the White House. Now, I don't care what your political affiliation is. I think you'd go to the White House. I would go to the White House. And so I go to the White House, he's Steve Marshall, I want you to be a, my ambassador of hope. I am giving you my insignet stamp. I am giving you all, of the, all authority of the United States of America to go represent us and be an ambassador of hope in this country. And I'm hoping he's sending me to a place where you know, I'm not going to get crucified or my head cut off, but that's a possibility. But he commissions us. And he commissions me. And I say, yes, I will do that. I don't care if I'm a Democrat or a Republican. I want to be an ambassador of hope. Now take that illustration, as crude as it was, now put it on the divine level. We're not talking about the God of the United States. We're not just talking about the God of the world. We're talking about the God of the universe says you are commissioned to be my disciple and to make disciples as you are going about in life. So the question would be, 
how am I doing with this? We simply need to ask, am I going and am I making disciples? If we can sit here today and say, I have no influence on anyone. I'm not making a disciple anywhere. Then we have decommissioned ourselves. Jesus didn't do it. David Platt says this in his book, Follow Me, which is an excellent book. He says, if you are truly a disciple of Jesus, you will be supernaturally compelled to make disciples of Jesus. True followers of Jesus do not need to be convinced, cajoled, persuaded, or manipulated into making disciples of all nations. Everyone who follows Jesus biblically will fish for men globally. Now I see two significant, these two significant words in this, in this, in this uh, passage. He says, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples in addition to us going under the authority. The word go means as you are going. It's a verb tense that says as you go about life. Now I could see people say, you know what? Jesus is just adding more responsibility to my schedule. No, he's not. He's not adding more responsibility to your schedule. He's giving you your schedule. He's giving you your schedule. As you go about in the rhythm of life that you have, as you go about to your workplace, as you go to exercise, as you go out to eat, as you go to the kids' soccer match, what are we to do? We are to always be looking to make disciples of Jesus. You say, well, what is a disciple? The disciple was a learner or a follower of Christ. Jesus is very clear in his assignment of ours. We are to make other followers and learners of Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't saying it's easy. He's not saying it's instantaneous. But he is saying it's our responsibility. So how do we go about that? Well, that takes us to our next principle. We are to have a core. You say, what is a core? A circle of responsibility. Where did I get that? Acts 1.8. So Jesus is just now about to ascend. We're going to see it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're going to see it. And in a few verses, he's actually going to ascend into heaven. And he has a conversation with his disciples. And he makes uh, the disciples ask this question of him. They say, Lord, will it at this time, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, what, was, what were the disciples asking? The disciples were like, okay, finally. Okay, we didn't understand the whole death thing. Now we got it. You're resurrected. But now, now must be the time that you're going to usher in your kingdom, overthrow these Romans who have persecuted us, and we are going to set up our kingdom right here in Jerusalem. Every Jew longed for the kingdom set there on earth. And Jesus says, uh, guys, nope. No, you got that one wrong. Uh, that's not up for you to know. The Father knows that. That's his authority. But let me tell you what my authority is. My authority, which I've already told you, is that you're going to go and make disciples. I don't think you got it here, so I'm going to say it again in a different way. You're going to go when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. These are places that went further and further out from where they lived. 
Now, what Jesus was giving was their core, their circle of responsibility. Individual disciples were to have a responsibility within their Jerusalem in the places that they worked. Now, one disciple could not reach all of Jerusalem, but all the disciples together, if they're doing their responsibility, could reach their Jerusalem. Our Jerusalem is either North Canton, I live in Uniontown, some of you live in Jackson, some of you live in a different community, that's your Jeru- possibly that's your Jerusalem. Maybe your workplace is your Jerusalem. It's within the rhythm of our life, and what we're to do is we're to go out under the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are to be witnesses in this area. It's our core. Lee and I, my wife and I, have determined that our core is twofold. Our neighborhood, we want to be faithful witnesses in our neighborhood but also our workplaces. We have lost people that we work with. Now you're saying, Steve, you work with uh, the staff. Okay, outside of the staff, we're in the Hoover District. Is what, that's why I love the fact that our offices are right there in the middle of the Hoover District. That's our, that's our circle of responsibility. The question is, what's yours? What's your circle of responsibility? You know, many believers have not even thought about this. Jesus wants us to think about it. Here's the second, third principle that we are to have. We are to go, we're to have a core, but we're also to be intentional. We're to be intentional in our witness. Now, a lot of us would say, well, I don't know how to be, what do I do with this core? I've identified it, but what do I do in this? Well, it's interesting. Jesus had a little clinic on this back in Luke chapter 10. Turn in your Bibles and we'll camp out here for the remainder of our time. Luke chapter 10. Jesus had 72 people at that time that called themselves disciples. And Jesus wanted to train them on what it meant to be intentional. Now, I encourage you, I'm going to give you several things that he gives them to be intentional. Jot them down, discuss them in your community group. I think it'll be beneficial. Here's the first thing that he teaches them. He teaches them, number one, don't work alone. Look at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them on ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he was about to go. Now, what he tells them is, I don't want you working alone. I'm going to send you out with people. What's interesting is that in the Scripture, I don't know of too many places, if at all, where people go out all by themselves and make it an individual sport, okay? It's not an individual sport. It's not an individual thing. It is a team thing. And he sends them out two by two. Now, I want you to know that this has kind of revolutionized my thought in terms of outreach. Because what you're going to find is a lot of the principle that Jesus is teaching here, we haven't been applying in the church at all. We've actually been taught just the opposite. Go out individually and do soul winning and knock on doors, cram the gospel down people's throat, turn or burn, flip or fry. You're gonna, you know, something's got to happen in your life. You know, we give this hellfire and brimstone approach. Some people have been taught that. That's not biblical. That's not in the scriptures. What God wants is for us to take a very intentional approach. This summer, our staff did reach out, and we continue to reach out to the Hoover District. We had three uh, cookouts 
to our, uh, to our uh, Hoover district, and about 250 to 300 uh, people came every time. Now, our goal was not necessarily, we wanted to see people come to faith in Christ, but we simply wanted to have conversations, get to know people. It wasn't about uh, people just coming to church. It was to begin a process of having influence within our community. In our community, for my wife and I, we continue to reach out, but we also are trying to identify believers that we can unite with and pray for our neighbors. You can do that in your workplace. You should do it. You should do it in your neighborhood. You should do it in your circle of responsibility. Make sure you're not working alone. The second thing that we're to do in our being intentional is to ask God. Take a look at verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, Jesus gives his disciples instruction to ask God for more workers. Now, as Jesus does this, he knows that he's sending them to places where there were no Christ followers. They didn't exist. So clearly what Jesus wants of his disciples is to pray for those that will be followers of Christ. You'll notice we have a, a prayer guide at for Mission View in that you will see places where you can pray for your core, for people that you are reaching out to. There's a purpose for that because I believe, as Kim and Lance shared earlier through prayer, that prayer does miraculous things. I was reflecting this last week over the many people that we've prayed for over the years, my wife and I. And it's just, it just hit me how many of them have given their life to Christ. How many of them are now worshiping in a church? And we didn't necessarily share the gospel with them. We just simply did the work of prayer. Prayer works. I don't understand it, but it works. Number three, he says we're to be bold. Take a look at verse three. He says this, Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now he's talking about a boldness that they were to have. Bill Hybels in his book, Just a Walk Across the Room, says this in regards to the kind of boldness that we should have. He says this, The key is this. My objective is not to contrive ways contrive ways to get someone saved. Rather, my objective is to walk when he prompts me to walk, talk when he says to talk, fall silent when I'm at risk of saying too much, and to stay put when he leads me to stay put. If I can lay my head on my pillow at night knowing that I have cooperated with the prompting of the Holy Spirit that day, I sleep like a baby. This is the approach Jesus is talking about when he says that we are to approach people as lambs among wolves. Face it, we work among wolves. We work around, among those that are self-absorbed because they don't understand. They haven't had the veil moved from their eyes. And what we're to do is just to boldly love those people. Number four. We are to depend upon the Lord. Take a look at verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. 
What Jesus was trying to teach his disciples was a dependency upon God, and he addresses an issue that each and every one of us face, and that is we like the familiar. We like to know how the roadmap goes before us. We want everything laid out. We want to operate in the land of the known, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're going to operate in the land of faith. You're going to operate in this kind of a journey. And my friends, before God does something bold through our life, we must step out in faith and be people of faith. It was a a little over a year ago that there was a group of people that said, we're going to take a step out in faith, get away from what is comfortable to us, and we're going to help start a new church in North Canton. Now, before we had funds, before we had a place to meet, before we had a group of worshipers, there first had to be individuals that would say, we will do this in faith. Here's my question. What miracle, what ministry, what changed life is yet to take place once you step out in faith? And depend on the Lord for, his, for the outcome. That's what God wants us to do. To depend on him. Verse 5 and 6. We are to seek out the person of peace. You say, what's that mean? Take a look. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, you, your peace will be rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Notice what he says. A son of peace. That's what you're looking for. See, Jesus is teaching us something that's very practical even to this day in regards to our outreach. The person of peace that's mentioned in this passage is not a Christian. It's not a follower of Christ, but rather it's a person that has a respect for God, a God-fearing individual that just doesn't understand what God has come to do. This implies that the Spirit of God goes out before any one of us as followers go out, and He prepares the hearts of individuals. And what He wants is for us to find those people of peace and be able to work with them and help them understand who Jesus Christ is. Now here's what I know. We'll never find the people of peace if we keep people at arm's distance. We'll never know. My wife and I have set a goal that we would have one of our neighbors over for, for dinner once a month. Uh, we have somebody that's going to be coming up very soon that are going to come over. Uh, my, since we have set that goal, I had to give invitation. And so on one day, I came home from basketball, and I noticed our neighbor was there. We'd been praying for that neighbor, and I sensed that he might be a person of peace. And so I went in and talked with them and said, hey, well, we'd love to have you guys over for dinner just to get to know you better, share our stories with each other. And they're like, well, we'd like to do that. And then all of a sudden, there was kind of a calmness that, and a, a criticalness that was in the air. And he says, hey, do you mind praying for us? And there was something going on in their life, and we prayed together. And little did I realize that day that that would happen. But my friends, this is what I know. When we are a place where we're asking God to lead us to those people of peace, God answers that prayer. And he opens doors that we don't even expect to happen. 
What are we to do with those people, peace? We're to spend time with them. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. What's Jesus teaching them? He's teaching them to stay, build relationships. He wants them to do exactly what Jesus has already modeled for his disciples. He went into the house of tax collectors. He spent time with them. He laughed with them. He ate with them. He stayed with them. And they interacted about life issues. This is where it happens. Nowhere in the scripture does God ever model or teach that we treat people like a project. What he wants is us for to simply love individuals and spend time together and let God supernaturally open up those doors. Now we know that the disciples would go back because in verse 1, Jesus says, I'm sending you out to the places where I'm about to go. So here's what would have happened. Jesus sends them out. They go out. They meet, they build relationships. They spend time in those homes. They go back from this mission trip. Jesus, then they go with Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus, come over here. I want you to meet Joe, man. He makes a great spaghetti. I'm telling you, well, it's not an Italian Jew, but, I mean, he, come on over. I want you to meet him. And so this was a process. Sometimes we can be in a hurry and think that it has to happen instantaneously, that people have to come to faith right now. But Jesus said this is a harvest field. Anybody that knows farming realizes that you have to cultivate the soil. You have to plant the seed. There has to be the watering. This is, there's no hurry here. God will do it. God builds his church. He's the one that increases growth. He does that. That's his problem. That's what he does. Our job is to do these things. We are to spend time. And finally, Jesus teaches, be the hands and feet of Christ. Look at verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God is near you. Do you see what happened here? Healing and speaking. In other words, the healing is to meet them where they are physically. There is a need for compassion. There's a need to come alongside of people. God is a holistic God who cares about a person, mind, body, spirit, intellect. He, he cares about all of that. And he wants us to have compassion. But he also wants, with compassion, to speak the message about God's kingdom, about his message. Compassion and the gospel go hand in hand. We can't have just compassion and we can't just have the gospel. We need to have both because that's what Jesus models for us. And in a sense, when we show compassion, we become the good news before they hear the good news. Here's a question. How can you be the good news to your core, to your circle of responsibility. Where have we come from? We've talked about we need to go, that we have to have a core, that we are to be intentional. And the final thing is that we are to love our neighbor. Now, we don't have time to look at this passage, but if you go on in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, there's a story that's told of the Good Samaritan. Many of you are familiar with that. Now, the context of this is there's an individual's wondering, okay, who is my neighbor? 
And basically, he is saying to Jesus, I want to know what your expectations are of me, Jesus. What do you want me to do when you say, love your neighbor? And so Jesus gives him a story. And it was a Jewish individual that's hearing this. And he gives a story about a guy that goes out. He gets beaten up by a bunch of robbers. And all of a sudden, a priest comes along, does nothing. A Levite comes along, does nothing. They're religious leaders. They, he would have known that. And then a Samaritan, which are hated by Jews, comes along and he does the good deed. He comes along and he bandages him. He gives him his resources. He takes care of him and makes sure that he is ministered to. And what Jesus is communicating to them, that love was the expectation. My friends, love always takes time. Love takes money. Love takes compassion. Love was the key. Love is the key. When we apply this with our neighbors, it would be good for us just to get rid of the word evangelism. I'm not saying that their gift doesn't exist. I'm just saying don't use that terminology. Use the word love. A lot of people have stigmas in their mind, like I mentioned earlier, of what an evangelist is. You're none of the, that. And I, I'm not either. I'm not somebody that crams something down somebody's throat that they don't want. But I can love. In fact, Jesus made it clear to his disciples. What did he say? He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By what? By the love that you have for one another. That's his expectation. Here's my question. Will showing love create opportunities for the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. Today we have learned how we are to influence our world. We are to go. We are to have a core. We are to be intentional. We are to love our neighbors. But I want to ask one more question that will only take a minute, and that is this. Why? Why should we be intentional? Why should we have influence in our world? Why should we do it? Our motivation, my friends, should be fueled by the fact that we have a love for our great God and the knowledge that we have the one and true living God. As I look into the world, I wonder sometimes if our passion for influence is as great as our enemies. This past week, I heard of three evil things. Number one, down in Florida, a satanic group based on the court ruling that churches could hand out religious leaders uh, literature they, the satanic group said, okay, we have now have legal precedence for our religion. So they made up a satanic coloring book, and the connect the dots were a pentagram and things like that. And so they're handing them out, just as the Christians are, in all the elementary schools down in Florida. Number two, I talked to a school official this week who reminded me of the incredible pressure that the school systems are under from the freedom from religion groups. He mentioned that there's a new headquarters here in Akron, and they are militant about getting every school in compliance with no God on premise whatsoever. And he says we, we have to work hard at keeping God out because we're going to have a legal suit that will take us to $600,000 that we just don't have. So as a result, we just don't have anything to do with God. When we look 
on a national scene. We look at ISIS, and we look at them crucifying Christians. We look at them beheading people. We look at them uh, creating terror and shame. This militant Muslim group is trying to reclaim the glory of an Islamic caliphate empire. So here we have it, a satanic group. We have a atheist group, and we have a Muslim group, all trying to make their mark on the world. My question is, what is your mark going to be as a believer in Jesus Christ? Here's my confidence. I believe in the body. I believe in the work of the Spirit of God. I believe that this is God's army. It's God's people that will love people. And as we sing this last song, Carrying Your Name, it's a great, it's a great way for us to end the service. And I want us to ask, what package do I need to get rid of? And how am I going to make that mark for God? Think about that. Pray about that. And sing these words with me. Thank you.